And now I ask, if you will, to please open your Bibles again to Mark's Gospel. We come to the fifth chapter, and we'll begin reading at verse 21. Before we pray and read, let me mention that the text for next Lord's Day morning will take in chapter 6, 1 through 29. You may want to read it in advance. It is a very convicting passage. It is a very challenging passage for our Christian lives. So I just mentioned that in advance of this coming Lord's Day. Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it is a great and wondrous thing that we can pray, that we may enter into the presence of the living and true God and know that we are praying to our Father who art in heaven. It is a wonderful thing to know, beyond measure, a wonderful thing to know that we are children of the living God that we have been adopted by free grace into thy family, and that there is nothing, nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how we do praise thee for the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who applies Holy Scripture to our lives and continues to grow believers in Jesus in grace. And we ask for that now, grow us in grace. But also, Father, How wonderful that we may intercede for others around us who may not yet know the Lord Jesus. And we would pray that this might be the day, if it is thy pleasure, that someone or someones will be drawn out of darkness into the kingdom of thine own dear Son, the kingdom of light. And so, Father, do be with us as we read and expound the word that Jesus Christ will be seen in all of his wonder as the glorious, altogether sufficient Savior of sinners. There is no one but him who could redeem, and he has redeemed us to the full. Thanks be to God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. This is the Word of God. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, remember that Mark begins his gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is where he rivets our attention all the way through his book. And we are in a section now, this section that is filled with these wonderful miracles in which Mark has shown the unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ. He speaks, and the wind and waves obey him. Demons tremble before him. And in this narrative, even the dead hear his voice. This is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And in this text, one narrative is inside of another, building suspense. The narrative holds together by human tragedy. This woman who had suffered from a debilitating disease for 12 years and the sad reality of a little girl who had only lived about 12 years and who is died. The prior text ended by those in Gennesaret asking that Jesus leave. This text indicates those who say to Jesus, come. Where do you fit in that? Are you with that crowd who do not want Jesus? Get out of my life. Or are you with those who are saying to Jesus, come, you're my only hope? So we begin analyzing the text, first of all, by seeing 12 years of tragic suffering, 12 years of tragic suffering. This synagogue official, it's really ruler, probably meaning he was an elder in the synagogue, named Jairus, fell at Jesus' feet, imploring for his daughter, and he uses the diminutive, my little daughter, he says. My little daughter is at the point of death, literally is at the end. My little daughter is at the end. She's that close to death. 
Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And this shows great faith, of course. And what a relief. Jesus went with him, and now there will be hope for his little daughter. But there's this great crowd of people who are, according to verse 24, thronging round Jesus. And Jesus could hardly move because of the crowd. But there was a woman in the midst of the crowd, a woman who had experienced bleeding for 12 long years. She had suffered under primitive medical methods of many doctors, had spent her resources, and only grew worse. And we have immediate sympathy with this woman, do we not? Pathetic picture, debilitation, weakness, discouragement, depression, her poverty, all of these things because of her 12 long years of suffering. A source that I still go to from time to time, it's old and outdated, but it has a lot of good information, is Vincent's Word Studies. I go to it periodically. And Vincent has um, a recording of some of the ways in which doctors treated women with a flow of blood. This is taken from the Talmud, so it's a little after this time, but not far. And probably these would have been the sorts of remedies, some of which she would have experienced. Well, here's one. Take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a fractional silver coin of alum, and of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman who has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take uh, of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. Well, if this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. Uh, But if that do no good, take a handful of cumin, a kind of fennel, a handful of crocus, and a handful of fenugreek, another kind of fennel. Let these be boiled in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If these do no good... Other doses over ten in number are prescribed, and among them, let them dig seven ditches in which let them burn some cuttings of vines, not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let them lead her away from this ditch and make her sit over that, and let them remove her from that and make her sit down over another, saying to her, Arise from thy flux." Well, as you can see, she would have spent all that she had, and she would have not benefited from the medical analysis of the day. How thankful we are for where medicine is now in the providence of God. But she also suffered socially. If we had time to look at Leviticus 15, we would see that a woman with a flow of blood was considered to be ceremonially unclean. And later on, there's an entire tractate given in the Mishnah that was written on this very theme. So she remained ceremonially unclean as long as the bleeding lasted and she would be shunned by society and her desperate search for a cure is not only because she's sick but also because she is shunned socially and religiously and probably shouldn't be in this crowd but there she is because she wants to come to Jesus. And hearing about Jesus, she's determined to touch his garment. Matthew and Luke recording this say the fringe, just the fringe. If I can touch just the fringe of his garment, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And she was not seeking a relationship with Jesus, at least not in the first place. Her faith, though real, likely was quasi-magical. I just know he's a healer. 
And it's the norm to be jostled in a crowd in a Near Eastern market. She'll just unobtrusively work her way through the crowd, come up and touch the hem of his garment. And she had lost, as someone says, her health, her wealth, and her standing in society. And Jesus is her only hope. And notice this, that Jesus helps the respected in society such as Jairus, and he helps the lowly and the dejected like this woman. Whatever your background may be, whatever your need may be, whatever your sins have been, come to Jesus, come to him. And in verse 29, we read, and immediately she touches Jesus, she touches the hem of his garment, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And she must have said to her herself, I'm healed, I'm healed. Literally, the fountain of blood immediately dried up, and she was healed of her torment or suffering, because the word that is used here is the word mastics, which is the word for a whip or for the lash. And it's a very unusual word to be used of a disease, but she has been whipped and she has been lashed by this disease for 12 long years. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. Immediately he turned about in the crowd and he said, who touched my garments? Well, women had little status in society, and this woman least of all. Jesus sets aside his first commitment to go and help Jairus because of her dying, his dying daughter. He sets that commitment aside for the moment in order to look for a woman who touched him, from whom power had, had gone out of his body to heal her. And what happened shows that Jesus is in sovereign control. He's not perturbed about the delay. He's not concerned that he won't get there in time. He's not concerned that in helping this woman that the girl will be irretrievably ill or even dead. Jesus asks, who touched me? He cares about the woman. He would draw this woman out and would have her show herself so that he may show himself to her. And the disciples were saying, the crowd is so large, how can we know if somebody in specific touched you? But Jesus kept looking for the one who touched. As one of the old writers put it, Jesus knew the difference between touch and touch. The power that went out from Jesus was not impersonal like electricity through wires or anything of that nature. The power was the personal power of the personal God working through the incarnate Son of God, and Jesus would know who touched him. Human sympathy, yes, but the healing points to something greater than her physical need. It is the need of her heart and soul to know him, to be confronted with him. And so in verse 33, trembling with fear, the woman came to Jesus and told him the truth about what she had done. Why was she afraid? Well, because she thought touching Jesus made him ceremonially unclean, or perhaps because she fears that he will rebuke her. In any case, a miracle had been wrought upon her, and she is coming into the presence of the one whose power had done what no man could do. 
And so he says to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. A.T. Robertson translated, Be whole of thy plague. Continue whole and well. So notice how Jesus reassures her. I don't remember anywhere else in the Gospels any other narrative there, this is told, of course, also in Matthew and Luke, but any other narrative in which Jesus says to a woman, calling her daughter. And some find it remarkable that Jesus does not rebuke her and finds true faith here. After all, her approach may have been more, as I said, like magic. She doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't know really anything about him, why he came, who he is. Nonetheless, her faith healed her. Not faith in the abstract, but faith in the one whom she knew could heal her of her disease. She has faith. The object of her faith is in Christ. Even if that faith was very small, even if it was imperceptible, even if it was very imperfect, and surely it was, it was true and living faith. Now, that's something that's extremely important. You may be a person here who is becoming very interested in Jesus. And God usually brings lost people to himself to know him as Savior. He usually brings people to himself in stages. And understanding usually is something that is gradual. This woman's faith at this point is just in Jesus' ability to heal her from her disease. She does not have a full knowledge of who Jesus is, Faith is usually a matter of small but real beginnings, and this is what Jesus sees in the woman. God has given her saving faith. Now, my counsel to you is don't dwell upon your faith. Dwell upon the object of your faith. Don't dwell upon the fact that it may be small faith. Dwell upon the greatness of the Savior. Don't dwell upon the faith that the fact that your, your faith must, must be very imperfect in many ways. The fact of the matter is, the one in whom you put your faith is altogether sufficient and altogether perfect and altogether able to save you from your sins. You see, before knowing Christ, I sometimes think, is like standing on the outside of a cathedral looking at the stained glass, and it's all dark, and you, you really can't make out what is being pictured in the glass. But then, shall I put it this way, when you have faith in Christ, it brings you on the inside, and you begin to look at the glass, and as the light becomes brighter over time, you begin to see more of the picture and to understand what is being pictured there. You see it in its brilliance and in its glory, and you come to understand more and more of what is being presented to you in the stained glass. Well, that's what it's like when you come to know Jesus. Believing Christ transports you on the inside, and as the light increases, the brilliant picture takes on life and luster. That is, that's what it's like to come to faith in Christ. And so he says to her, go in peace. She could not have known this, but ultimately this pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not just a polite saying on his part. He is saying to her that the peace of God, the peace of God that is wrought on the cross, the peace of God that he came to bring, the peace of God that reconciles God and sinners, 
That is the peace that he wants for this woman. And if I realize that God is at peace with me, then I can begin to live at peace on the inside, subjectively. Now, the scene shifts. This wonderful thing has happened to this woman, and yet there's been a pause, hasn't there? And what do you think might have been in Jairus' mind while this pause was taking place? Well, in verse 35, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the house someone who said, your daughter is dead. They say, why? They said, why trouble the teacher any further? Well, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> the daughter is dead. Thanks, Jesus, for wanting to come with me, but it's too late now. That might have been Jairus' response. And so the suspense builds in this historical narrative and the telling of this historical event. The suspense builds, and the text does not dwell on what Jairus thought. The text is concerned with the authority of Jesus. Jesus is not distressed. Jesus is not perturbed. He is not deterred by this message. No, Jesus is in charge, and he looks at Jairus, and he calls for faith, and he says here in verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Yes, you're hearing that your daughter is dead, but I haven't changed. I am still the same Christ. And so only believe. So this interpretation of the whole passage stresses that we must focus upon Christ and who he is, because the interruption is no hindrance to Jesus. Why bother Jesus? Let me assure you, when you bring your knee to Jesus, you are not bothering him. He wants you to come. And now we turn to the sad condition of Jairus' daughter, who had, and this is the second thing, 12 short years of life. So we've seen a woman under this terrible flow of blood for 12 years, and now a young woman who has only lived for 12 years. But in verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, do not fear, only believe. Hadn't Jairus just heard Jesus tell the woman who had been healed that her faith had saved her? Yes, but a case of bleeding is quite different. It's a distance from death itself. Only believe, says Jesus, and it's a present imperative, which is a command, which is saying, since it's a present tense, you believe and you keep on believing. You continue to have faith in me. I read somewhere that the need was high and the help was nigh, and that is certainly true. Jesus took Peter and James and John with him. They also will see the transfiguration, which we will come to in Mark's gospel, which will be an anticipation of Christ's glory. But this also is an anticipation of Christ's glory, because every miracle that you read, whether it's in Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, every miracle that you read in the Gospels is suffused with the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It it exemplifies the power of the risen Christ before his resurrection took place. And so Peter, who narrated this to Mark, Peter who was there and saw it, and Mark himself are simply connecting the dots that lead up to the empty tomb and to the glorious resurrection of your Savior from the dead. 
Well, when they arrived, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. No doubt the family and and friends were mourning, but they also had hired um, mourners, which was the the way they did things there and the way they did things in those those times. They hired mourners. We know this. Matthew 9.23 references the flute players that were there, which would have been part of the mourning party that would have been hired. I wonder if sometimes you have seen funerals in the Mideast, at least on newsreels, and you see the wailing and the misery, the hopelessness that is there. I think something like that is what was experienced here. So here then is Jesus, and who is he? His life. He is life himself, and there he's in the midst. Think of the incongruity of it. Here is Jesus, who is life And he's in the midst of all of this wailing and this misery and this mourning and this hopelessness. But that's why he came. And that's the kind of world into which he came. The kind of world into which you and I were born with original sin and living in this fallen world. And so why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And what did they do? They laughed at him, we're told in the text. And it's an imperfect tense, which means they continue to laugh at him. They just didn't laugh a moment and then get back to mourning. By the way, it's, it's astounding to me when I read the text that we have people who have the ability to weep and wail and mourn and then the next moment laugh and to continue laughing. But that's what they do. And they laugh at Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He put them outside. A.T. Robertson says, the presence of some people will ruin the atmosphere for spiritual work. And that's true. Determined not to be like that. Miracles, you see, in the gospel narratives were not performed to convince skeptics. There is no honest doubt anyway. Sin is the ultimate illusion maker. And so Jesus took with him father and mother and Peter and James and John, and there they go to the little girl. She's dead. The girl is dead. Luke's gospel, chapter 8, 53 and 55, make it extraordinarily plain. The girl is dead. When Jesus said the child is not dead but sleeping, Jesus was expressing his authority over death. Because sleeping people wake up. C.E.B. Cranfield rightly said this, For Mark, no doubt, the words had also a general significance as a reminder to Christians that death is not the last word, but a sleep from which Christ will wake us, that is, our bodies, at the last day. And therefore, a rebuke to those who in the presence of death behave as those who have no hope. How are you in the presence of death? How are you on those occasions in which perhaps you think of your own death? You know, John Calvin made this comment. It's from the Institutes. This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God We must above all remember this substitution lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout life. Yes, and 
lest we remain anxious at the point of our deaths. If Jesus has borne your guilt and has removed from you your sin, he has removed the sting. And now for the believer in Christ, death is the portal to heaven and there will be the resurrection in the last day. You know, I believe in funerals. I really believe in funerals. I believe they're good. I believe they're right. And I believe they should be times of grief. Uh, I deplore the attempt in our culture and even in the church to slough over grief. That's not right. But we should grieve Christianly. Chrysostom in his day had the opposite issue to face when at Christian funerals there was wailing and howling and he warned that they were forgetting the resurrection. So what is best? Grieve. Death is the result of the fall. There is genuine loss for you, not for the believer who has gone to be with Christ, which is far better, but grieve. That is the right thing to do. But Grieve, hopefully, in the certainty of Christ, his forgiveness, and his resurrection, and what he has promised the believer. So he comes to the girl, and in verse 41, it's so simple, so beautiful, no fanfare. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up, and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. She was not tiny, she was 12. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. It is as easy for Jesus to raise the dead as it is to arouse a sleeping child. And he took her hand and gave a word of command, and she lived. And those there are completely astonished. Even the dead... Even the dead obey his voice. The wind obeys his voice. The waves obey his voice. The demons, as we saw last week, obey his voice. The sickness, such as the woman with the flow of blood, sickness obeys his power. The dead obey his voice because Jesus is God in the flesh and nothing is impossible for him. This kind of authority raises the question, and that's what Mark is doing. Just as when he presented Jesus' command of the, of, the, of the wind and waves, who is this? So he casts out demons, who is this? The woman touches his garment and is healed, who is this? He raises this little girl. Mark wants you to ask the question, who is this? And wants you to find the answer right here in this gospel that is recorded. Imagine the very words of Jesus, too. You're reading the very words of Jesus spoken in Aramaic when he raised this little girl to life. Because remember, Peter passed this on to Mark, who by divine inspiration has recorded these words. These words are divinely inspired. So Jesus would keep the details as private as possible, and the miracle, the light of his deity is shining through, but only after his resurrection will there be complete understanding. And then there's a vivid, touching, human detail. Jesus tells them, 
giver something to eat. Because who doesn't have a 12-year-old and not find that they're always hungry? <laughs> now, I want you to think with me for a few moments. Third thing, final thing. Think with me for a few moments on the meaning of Jesus' miracles. Jesus is the creator that came into the fallen world to recreate and to restore. And the restoration was first hinted at in these miracles, I mean, the miracles we've been looking at. It is first hinted at by the theme of uncleanness. Yes, there's the restoration of the world to come in nature, but there's this theme of uncleanness, the unclean spirits, this man that lived among the tombs, this, this, um, the, the demons that are cast into pigs, these unclean pigs, the uncleanness of a menstrual disorder and the uncleanness of a corpse. But this prepares us for the cross. Do you see that? Not only did our Lord touch the dead girl and share in her ceremonial uncleanness, but he took our real guilt and sin and death upon himself on the cross, our real defilement he bore in the presence of his Father, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him in our place as condemned he stood. But also the restoration is pointed to by the theme of resurrection. That is the miracle of miracles that suffuses its light into our everyday Christian living. For if death were the end, we would be hopeless and would remain in the grip of the evil one. But Jesus himself is the death of death. And that is why a major theme of the text also is faith. We are now called to believe in the risen Christ and to live by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, Colossians 3, other places in Scripture How many of us think, how many of us think that death and sadness are credible, but that resurrection is incredible, obscure, and somehow uncertain? We think of death as the ultimate reality and resurrection as an elusive and vague wish at best. The opposite is the case. The resurrection of Jesus is clear. And all else, everything else, including death, is to be interpreted in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that already is hinted at in these miracles, and especially as he raises this little girl to life. Without the resurrection, nothing makes sense. So does this mean that we will not sometimes struggle with our faith as believers in Jesus? May not faith be real, though weak? Is it not, is it not possible that even though we truly believe in Jesus, yet we, we struggle to see clearly and things seem still to be vague? Yes, we're on the other side of the window and the light is coming in, but we want more light and we want to see more clearly. And again, it's important to remember the object of your faith is the one that saves, not your faith in itself in some abstract way. When he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, what he means is I, the object of faith, the one in whom you have believed has saved you. 
So maybe someone here feels hopeless. Maybe you are just overwhelmed with all of the grief and the sadness of the world. Maybe in your own life you are filled with those things. Well, let me remind you, the demoniac was hopeless. Who could have delivered this man that was indwelt by and controlled by legion? He was hopeless. The woman with a flow of blood, 12 long years, was hopeless. The father told that his daughter was beyond help was hopeless, except for Jesus. And because there is Jesus, we do not live hopelessly in this fallen world. Now, Every time I come to this text or the parallel texts in Matthew and in Luke, I think of A.T. Robertson. I've told you this many times. I'm not sure if I've ever actually read from his biography. He had a daughter. A.T. Robertson, by the way, was one of the finest Greek scholars, New Testament Greek scholars of the early 20th century. His massive Greek grammars, over a thousand pages. And... He did just great work on especially understanding how the non-literary papyri apply to the language of the New Testament. Just fascinating and wonderful and helpful. But he had a daughter whose name was Charlotte, and his little daughter Charlotte was the apple of his eye, the apple of his eye, and she died. And his biographer tells us this, His attitude toward the Bible was strange and beautiful, a strange and beautiful admixture of erudition and childlike faith. Those who were in his home at that heartbreaking day when his beloved and unusually brilliant child, Charlotte, was taken could never forget his grief and his sorely tested faith. He was stunned beyond all words. He walked about the house helplessly with his open Greek New Testament in his hand, reading the story of Jairus' daughter. Grief-stricken, he said to his weeping friends, he raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? And like multitudes of Christ's disciples through the ages, the learned scholar, along with the rest, came into a new fellowship with the Christ of Gethsemane and learned to pray the same prayer, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now God is going to answer the prayer of A.T. Robertson weeping over his daughter with his Greek New Testament in his hands, reading the very narrative that we have just read over and over and over again. He raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? It is, it is not unbelief that filled Robertson's heart. It was faith in Christ. It was hope. He was turning to the only one who could help him. And God is going to keep his promise. And not only will A.T. Robertson be raised from the dead, but his little daughter, Charlotte, will be raised from the dead to live eternally in the presence, restoration of body and soul, glorified body in the presence of Jesus Christ and of Dr. Robertson himself. God always keeps his promises to you 
his people. And that's why I keep saying to us, we really need to be in the Bible. When things hurt, when, when things come that seem incomprehensible to us, when we live in a fallen world with all of its confusion and apparent madness, where am I going to have solid rock under my feet if I'm not immersed in God's Word as my only infallible rule of faith and practice, as was A.T. Robertson? Dr. Robertson struggled when his little daughter, Charlotte, died. But the point is, he struggled with a Bible in his hand and a Bible that filled his heart. Do you see the point? Do you see what I'm saying? Can you understand the significance of this? Trouble is going to come. We live in a fallen world, and it's not out of God's sovereign control, and it may not work out in this life the way that we would have designed. God knows best. We walk by faith and not by sight, but get the Word of God in your heart and fix your gaze on Jesus and fix your gaze on the promise of God that is recorded in His Word. In this life, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Do not fear. The message of this text is, do not fear. Only believe. Believe in Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.